Well, good morning, my friends. Good morning. What a joy it is to be together. He is risen. And yeah, that's okay. I'll cut you some slack on this one. And here's why. You know what? Today is a great day to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. But you know what? The truth is, every Sunday, we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Each and every Sunday that we gather is for the same purpose that we've gathered this morning, to proclaim that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and that his life means more than any other life in history. That his life in me makes me alive too. He's conquered death. He is one. And we join him in that victory. Death no longer holds sway over us. Friends, this is a long way from the first garden. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 3. There you find the Garden of Eden. It was created perfect and intended to be a permanent home for us in God's presence in a perfect state forever and for always. But you know what happened. Things changed. We gave that privilege away. The Satan... The serpent Satan came in and whispered lies into the heart and the mind and the ears of Adam and Eve. They swallowed them up wholesale and they said, yes, that's for us, and then hid from God. We gave away the first garden. When God recognized the problem, he had no choice but to banish them. For to leave them in a perfect place, in their imperfect state, would lead to their destruction. So God did what God does. He made a way. Redeeming their lives, he banished them from the Garden of Eden. And that's where we stayed. Banished. Oh, but not forever, friends. Not forever. This is the essence of the good news today. For you see, there was another garden. Some 3,000 years later, there was another garden. That second garden, that was the one that had a cross, much like this one that stood over it, and it had a tomb. Now, the first garden, we might say that Adam and Eve died there. Because in some respects, indeed they did. Their lives were changed irrevocably by what happened there. We might say they died there, and so we might say there was a grave in the Garden of Eden. We might say with confidence that just from this cross, there was a garden too. A garden that would change everything around it, for it held a grave. No one had ever been laid there. Jesus was laid there, but not for long. Oh, friends, not for long. I want to take you through some reasons that the empty grave still matters. And I want to do it by talking to you about two gardens, two graves, and one hope. Let's start here. In the Garden of Eden, we heard lies. Lies that taught us to believe things that weren't so. But Jesus, in his coming, he destroys the dishonesty of the first garden. 
Adam and Eve had bought into these lies and said, yeah, that's for us. And ever since our banishment, we've longed as a humanity to find that place of perfection. And there are many who say we can create it if we just had the right circumstances. These circumstances lead us to other things that aren't necessarily true. Let's talk about a couple of them. We deceive ourselves, and our deceit is forged on our preferences. Our preferences that reflect God's choices must match mine if he really is God. Because after all, I'm so right. And God, he lived a long time ago. Surely he doesn't know what it's like in 21st century Texas. Our preferences lead us to think that God must like what I like and hate what I hate. His preferences must be a reflection of mine. Let's be clear, my friends, that's not true. God, God is God. And his preferences are for our holiness, not our comfort. Here's a second element to it. Our deception is founded on our opinions. My opinions must be right because I'm so well informed. God must agree with me to be God. Now, for me, that must be correct, don't you think? That's a joke for those of you that are new to us, all right? Don't walk out here saying, that dude is some kind of full of himself. No, this is intended to be facetious. It's when I begin to believe that my opinions are right because I'm so well informed and that not only that, God must agree with those opinions in order for him to be God. Let's be clear, friends. God is above our opinions. He doesn't have to share them in order to have that role. God is God. When we lie and say, in order to be God, he has to share my opinions, then we share in the dishonesty that Satan lied in the garden with. Here's a third problem. Our dishonesty is formed by our understandings. It's usually expressed by something like, God must be understandable on my terms in order for me to accept his rule. We're so brilliant. We must be right. Our understanding of the world and how it works must govern all things. It doesn't necessarily mean we're wrong, but it certainly means we're still trying to replace the Garden of Eden with our own garden. Well, friends, let's be clear. Proverbs 14, verse 12 is still true. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it only ends in death. When I limit myself to my preferences, my opinions, and my understandings, and I say, God, you've got to do it this way in order for you to really be God, then I find myself confined by my own limitations. Lies do that to us. They steal from us. There's a reason God forbade lying in the Ten Commandments. It steals our sense of truth. It steals our sense of right. It steals our capacity to trust one another. It, it steals our, our, our balance, causes us to be disoriented because no one likes to be fooled. And that is why Jesus came. He came to tell us the truth 
to be the truth and to show us the truth. This, friends, is the truth. The cross. See, that other garden, the one with the empty tomb, it tells a different story than the first garden. It tells the story of one who is perfect and yet gave his life for me and for you. It tells the story of the penalty of sin that had to be paid by one who had no sin and who sacrificed his life willingly. It tells the story of a tomb where they took him down from the cross and they laid him there. And they walked away believing that all hope was lost. It also tells the story of how three days later, that tomb was opened not from the outside in, but from the inside out. No more does Eden define me. Now the garden of the empty tomb does. This new life shatters the burdens of my past mistakes and liberates me to the fullness of life. That brings me to a couple of questions that I want you to take home with you. One, how can I tell truth from fiction? If I bought into these lies, how can I tell the difference? One simple question will get you started. Which one matches God's word? Here's a second question. If I only have two choices, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of the Empty Tomb, which garden do I want to live in? My hope is that you'll choose the one with the empty tomb, for that means that you're living in the resurrection power that only Jesus can provide, friends. Here's a second reason that Jesus came and that Jesus died on our behalf and that his resurrection means everything. Jesus welcomes the sinner home to the garden of the empty tomb. You see, remember what we said a minute ago? That we were supposed to be in the Garden of Eden? That we were liberated from the Garden of Eden because of our choices? We were banished from it? That we were sent away from the home that God meant for us to have? That he had to put us out? Otherwise, his holiness would not be full. He would not be God if he had let us stay. The Garden of the Empty Tomb tells a very different story. As Jesus stretched out his arms wide, it was not just to be crucified. It was to say, welcome home. For the burden of your sins, the burden of your past, the burden of your mistakes, all the condemnation that you've ever known was paid for in full. This, friends, this means that we need not fear death, shame, or guilt anymore. See, this is what Satan does. He comes to us and tells us we have no home, that there's no place that will welcome us as we are, that we have to get ourselves right, that we have to make ourselves right. Can I tell you today, friends, that's just not true. The garden of the empty tomb means that Jesus welcomes you to his home. What kind of home will it be like? Well, I don't know exactly, but I know this. God is there, and that's enough. I can't help but think about a story that I read not long ago about a man who'd been deployed with the United States Air Force overseas. He'd been gone 
for a great many days, months in fact, and just as soon as he possibly could, he decided he would go home. His deployment was concluded, and he got home several weeks before he was expected. When he got home, he thought he would surprise his family, but when he got there, there was this massive banner out on the front yard, Welcome Home Dad! Man, what a welcome! When he got inside, they were surprised to see him, but they threw their arms around him, and after a teary embrace, he said, Now how exactly did you know when I was coming? I didn't even know when I was coming. How did you know? Hmm. His wife looked at him and said, We knew you'd try to surprise us. We've been waiting for you, living as if every day you'll be home. Friends, that's the kind of welcome home that Jesus offers you. You may think, well, I've done so many things that are stupid and foolish. Haven't we all? Being a Christian doesn't liberate you from that. It liberates you from the penalty of that. It means that Jesus wants you to find him to be enough. I want to ask you two things. Where is your home? I don't mean the place where you slept last night or you keep your clothes or where you park your car. I mean, where is your spiritual home? Where is it that you reside spiritually? All of us do somewhere, even if it's deliberately nowhere. I want to encourage you today to recognize Jesus welcomes you to his home. Here's a second question. If I only have two gardens to choose from, the Garden of Eden or the Garden Tomb, Garden of the Empty Tomb, which garden do I want to live in? Here's a third reality. Jesus abolishes the condemnation of the Garden of Eden. See, at the Garden of Eden, that was where condemnation fell. No sooner had Adam and Eve given in to temptation then the shame and guilt of their choices began to pile up upon them. It just fell upon them like a heavy burden, crushing them. That's why they hid from God. That's why they put themselves away, because this moment of guilt that they were in is the kind that bows backs and sags shoulders. Can I tell you today, my friends, the temptation is to think that we must live that way because of the past and the reality of the mistakes that we've made. I want to give you good news today. And I want you to take it home with you. Jesus came to liberate you from that. One of the reasons that I do what I do is because I want to see people move from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of the Empty Tomb. I brought a picture I want you to see with me. Take a look at this one. This is a condemned house. It's in Canada. And yes, it's a real place. It may have fallen down by now. I don't know. But this is a legit place that had a bad foundation and began to shift and move. And so it's not safe to live there anymore. That's why there's a sign on the front door that says, Condemned, do not enter. Now, if we were to see the spiritual lives of some people, we would see they look much like this. Because the weight of their guilt and their shame 
and the accusations that Satan constantly throws, the weight of that has crushed them down and caused them to be weakened. It caused them to see themselves wrongly. Can I tell you today, my friends, this doesn't have to be your reality, but it sure can be. Is this the way you want to live, or is there another choice? Sometimes even in churches we find this kind of struggle. Take a look at this picture of the next thing that I brought, maybe the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I showed you this picture last week, and I, some of you said, hey, Darren, you never got back to it. Well, I'm bringing it back today. That was the plan all along. I want you to notice on the upper floor, right in the middle of the picture, there's three windows, one, two, three. Look at that center window, and just at the bottom of it, just below that, there's a cornice with a ladder leaning up against it. I want to zoom in on that picture right quick. Take us to the next slide, if you would. Uh, this is an up-close picture of that ladder that I took a couple of years ago when we were there. Take a look at this ladder. Look at it carefully. And you might say, that's not a very remarkable ladder, Darren. It's Easter Sunday. Don't you have a better story to tell? Hang in there with me, okay? Go along with me on this. This church is managed by six different organizations. Six different churches, and at least since 1725, they've entered into an agreement that says no, any one of those six groups will make any changes of any type, sort, or flavor to this building unless the other five can agree. Now, I want to ask you, how often do you think they can agree to make changes to the building? Exactly. Not very often. They call it the pact of the status quo. No changes. Leave everything as it is. Now that brings us back to the ladder. Sometime around 1740, 1750, someone put this ladder against the wall. They put the ladder there, and they leaned it up against the church. It's not clear why. Perhaps they were there to clean a window, but we don't know that. They leaned it up against the wall, and then the other group saw it. No one would claim it because they didn't want to be responsible for breaking the status quo. So they decided that they would leave it there until they could agree to remove it. How long has it been there? This particular one go to that last slide. This photograph is from 1870. This particular one is brand new there. Brand new. What do you mean, Darren? So the original ladder was at least there from 1757. That's the first lithograph that we have of it. After about 100 years, it fell apart. They didn't have to agree to that. So what did they do? They made another one. And they put it in its place. Because after all, we can't change anything, right? We can agree on that much, we just can't agree on anything else. Then, something crazy happened in 1997. Some fool climbed up there and stole it. I invite you, look it up if you don't believe me. You think I'm making this up. Immovable ladder. I invite you to look it up. When I go to this church, and we go there every time we go to Israel because it, it's the, where the tomb of Christ 
associated historically resides. It's at the end of the Via Dolorosa. It is the final three stations of the cross. Can I tell you, my friends, every time I go, I look up at that, and there's a part of me that cringes. Why can't we agree? And I'll tell you why. It's because we are too easy to condemn others and too slow to recognize where we need to confess. I want to call your attention, though, to something else. That kind of thinking is from the Garden of Eden. But the Garden of the Empty Tomb gives us another direction. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, and it's really good news. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. We've been given a new life. And get this, this is the really exciting part. It's one that frees us from condemnation. No longer do we have to look like that house. Now we can be who God made us to be. I want you to take this home with you. Condemnation traps us while grace frees us. Condemnation traps us and holds us there. Grace frees us to be who God made us to be. So if the Garden of Eden is trapping us in our own condemnation and the Garden of the Empty Tomb grants us grace to be free, which garden do you want to live in? Which one? My prayer is that it's the Garden of the Empty Tomb. Let us wrap up with this. One of the things Jesus meant to do through being resurrected is to Jesus breaks the curse of lies to bring us one hope. In the Garden of Eden, there were lies. First, by the serpent. Then, by Adam and Eve. Their lies, lies cost them their rightful place in God's kingdom. If they had known what it would cost them, they would have never entered into it, but that's what lies do. They deceive us, they trick us, they undersell the real price, and then once we know what it really will cost, it's too late. I want to give you good news today, and the good news is this. Jesus came to break the curse of lies and to bring us one hope. In the garden of the empty tomb, the curse of lies has been broken. Sin has lost and life has won. Jesus Christ, standing supremely over all of it, says, no more. No more condemnation. No more guilt. No more shame. Jesus came to make it right. Matt Chandler, he's a pastor at a church in, in the Dallas area, he tells a story that I bet all of us could share. Maybe a little different. For him, he was preaching in a town that he grew up in. It was about 20 minutes from the church where he, was, he, had, he had grown up, and 
he decided in between sessions of this conference that he was preaching at that he would drive over to where he'd grown up, not far from there. He got into his rental car and he drove through town and he recognized a lot of places and some happy memories, but also some sad ones. Field where he'd gotten into a fist fight, where he'd done some terrible things to somebody. A house where some things had happened that he was ashamed of. Another house where some shameful things had happened. As he was driving back to the conference, this wave of shame and guilt and condemnation just washed over him. And he heard a voice say, you call yourself a man of God. How are you going to stand in front of all these people and tell them you're a man of God when you know all the things you've done? After everything you've done, you have surrendered all rights to speak. In the middle of that, Matt tells it better than I can, in the middle of that, the old Matt Chandler, he remembered. But at the same time, he remembered that Matt Chandler was dead. The Matt Chandler who did those things, the Matt Chandler who sinned in those ways, he was nailed to the cross with Christ and all of his sins, past, present, and future, were paid for on the cross. And when Jesus was laid in that tomb, the price was paid once and for all. Shame has no place anymore because Christ paid the price. So when Jesus is raised back to life, when he comes back to life, it means this, death has no power over us anymore. Praise the Lord. Now, I want to ask you two last things and we'll be done. One, if we've ever needed hope, it's now. But where do we find it? Find it in Jesus alone. If you're looking for it in opinions, preferences, understandings, if you're looking for it in approval, you will find yourself disappointed every single time. Friends, this day is the day Jesus wants you to find it in him. If I'm left with only two choices, the Garden of Eden, where condemnation, shame, and guilt fall upon me because of the mistakes that I've made and the past that I've walked, or the garden of the empty tomb where Jesus died to pay the price for me. Which garden do I want to live in? See, all of us will come to the same conclusion. We'll all die unless Jesus comes back to save us from that. We'll all die. It's 100%. But not all of us will find ourselves there the same way. It's sort of like the section that Jimmy read for you a little while ago. Peter and John, the other disciple, they arrive at the tomb. They both look in, but they see two very different things. 
Peter looks in and sees folded cloths. John looks in and sees Jesus isn't there. He sees new life. He sees hope. He sees joy. He sees the mercy of Christ given to him. Can I ask you, friends, what about you? What do you see? If you're here today and you would say, I get it, Darren. I get it. What do I do now? Here's what you do. You call on the name of Jesus. It can be as simple as, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. I recognize that, and I need you to save me. Come into my life. Be in charge, Jesus, and let my life be in you. I get you started. Maybe you want to talk to somebody about that. I hope so. After this service is over, I'll be waiting right outside here. Come find me. I'll be the tall guy waiting for you. I got nothing else to do that's more important than talk to you about Jesus. Maybe you will find one of my other staff. We're wearing name badges. We're easy to spot. Maybe you're not in the building and you want to do that. Then pick up your phone and text the name Jesus to 315-0092. That's, that's a wonderful way to celebrate Easter. It's about getting things right with Jesus. Maybe you need to pray and confess the sin that you've held on to, that you've embraced the shame and the condemnation of the Garden of Eden, even though you've given your life to Christ some years ago. Today's the day to get that right. Let today be the day that you get things right with the one who lives in the garden of the empty tomb. Pray with me, won't you? So now, Jesus, you have given us the blessing and the privilege of being yours. It is no small thing. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling right now who are feeling the tug of your Holy Spirit on their lives and they're arguing with you even as I speak about whether they should respond or not. I pray for freedom, Lord Jesus. I pray for freedom. I pray that you would break the shackles of condemnation, shame, and guilt of past mistakes. That they would understand, Lord Jesus, that's exactly what you came to forgive. Would you do your work, Lord Jesus, in us? Would you speak into our hearts and would you use this day to do it? We are grateful, Lord Jesus, for your resurrection, for it means new life for us too. So guide us in that new life, Lord Jesus, and let us live in that garden of the empty tomb. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.